Good to see you all today. Let's pray, and we're going to get in, into the Word and into the message today. Lord, I thank you for this day. It's a day that you have created. You've told us to rejoice in this day and to be glad in this day. We want to do just that, Lord. And um, we gather now as your people. Lord, we, uh, we open our hearts to you, our minds to you. Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would teach us today and just equip us to uh, live more effectively for you in this world. We thank you for this morning. I invite you to be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. It's sort of a sad testimony of our culture that we have to have a day, like today, called the Sanctity of Life Day. It reminds us that uh, there are large swaths of our population that would laugh at a day like today and would, would laugh in the face of the things that we've just heard. This issue of abortion has become a, a flash pan, if you will, in our society. And my hope today is to sort of, uh, is to continue with a little bit with what Mike was saying, but maybe to also expand uh, our view of the issues that face us today as a culture and a society and, uh, and see what the Scripture says about those things. Hopefully we'll be able to sort of weave a tapestry of, of, uh, of truth that define how we're supposed to respond to the challenges of our day, to the social ills of our day. I think most in here certainly would, would consider abortion to be a social ill. And I will reiterate something I didn't do at the first service, and I'm sorry I didn't, but uh, to those of you here that have been affected by abortion, um, if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Scripture is clear about that, and so uh, be encouraged with that. But this issue of abortion, um, pretty amazingly important issue in our day. We have politicians that, uh, that, that run on, uh, on the ticket of pro-life or pro-choice. We vote Supreme Court justices in based on their position on this singular issue. Oftentimes we have bumper stickers and protests. We have organizations like the Pregnancy Center on, on the right side of this issue and, and uh, Planned Parenthood on the other side of this issue. And, and, and we see it a lot in our day, in our age. And we've, we've rationalized, our society has uh, rationalized our argument, as Mike said, down to this question of when life begins, as if uh, the biology textbook has an answer to that question that's going to clarify the issue, and that is is not the case, even though we would agree scientifically that life biologically, physically begins at conception. Uh, the other side knows that as well and are not moved. And so what I want to start with today is, is not a discussion of whether life starts at 20 weeks or conception or when the baby's viable. These are the hot topics that we debate. But I'll remind us that Ephesians 1.4 says that he chose us in himself before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. So, so from the outset, it's important for us as Christians to understand that this whole dialogue about life, about when life begins and what, what, you know, what, what the issues are with abortion, um, there's a bigger picture um, that defines our reality. There's a bigger picture uh, to this issue. So um, I would never discourage anyone from stepping up and, and uh, ministering in, a very, in, a, in an area of our culture, whether it's abortion or, or counseling post-abortively or at a pregnancy center or, uh, you know, 
God equips us. God calls us. God gives us various passions uh, to step into our, our culture and represent him. Uh, and, and there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of statistics that I'm going to just I'm going to share just a brief snippet of regarding abortion, because as we look at these statistics, I think we can we can see and make some generalizations about our culture at large. So in 1970, according to the CDC, in 1970 there are 193,491 abortions in the United States. 1970. Three years later, Roe v. Wade was was uh, uh was passed or it was decided. The very next year, 1974, 763,476 abortions were reported. So between 1970 and 1974, we went from 193 to 763,000, an amazing increase in abortion. It's as if this floodgate was opened, a door was opened, and, and people just started running through it. And it hasn't stopped. 20 years later, 1994, one generation later, 1,267,415 abortions, 1994, 650% increase. It's amazing. It's sad. This is why Ronald Reagan said we're going to have this Sanctity of Life Day so many years ago. I think it was the 10-year 10, 10 anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Today in New York City, 2013, the most recent year I could find these statistics, 37% of pregnancies in New York City ended in abortion in 2013. If you lived in the Bronx, it was 45%. If you were in the African, African-American community, it was over 50% of pregnancies ended in abortion. This is, a, this is a, a blight on our society and our culture. And certainly, we as Christians should stand up and represent the Lord in this dialogue. And as we do it, we should also be cognizant of a bigger picture. You know, uh, when I, um, I got saved in Blacksburg at 24 years old, and I remember uh, I was sort of a new ager for some years, and, uh, and, and, uh, which is not where you want to be. And uh, I didn't really believe anything. Or uh, flip side, you could say, well, I kind of believed everything. And I got saved. Uh, but, but leading up into the, the months before I got saved, I had been in dialogue with a guy for some, some months, uh, and he was sharing the gospel with me, and I was fighting him every step of the way, looking for a handhold, looking for a foothold, looking for some loophole, in the gospel message that would allow me to stay steeping in my sin and steeping in my ignorance and in my lifestyle. This is what I wanted to do. The last thing I wanted to do was get on my knees at the foot of the cross and confess I was way, way wrong and in need of the Savior. And so for several weeks, I was in agony because spiritual agony and physical agony in a way because I had come to know and believe without a shadow of a doubt that I needed Jesus Christ as my Savior, that I was a hopeless sinner, and that there was one way out, Jesus Christ. I knew that in my heart. Actually, I knew that in my head. But it hadn't made its way to my heart. And I, didn't, I had, didn't, hadn't made my decision yet to get saved. And the guy that, never forget this, the guy that, uh, that shared the gospel with me said to me one day, he said, well, you know, the devil's going to try to kill you. I said, what? What do you, what do you, he said, the devil's, the devil's going to try to kill you. He wants you dead. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I'm just saying, you know the truth? You're, you're thinking about it. You're chewing on it. And uh, the devil wants you dead before you make a decision. And I'm just telling you that. And you know, it was it. So I, I remember driving down the road at night and, and, and looking at the car coming at me and thinking, is he, is he going to cross the double line? I was paranoid. Thinking, okay, I don't want to die because I hadn't made the decision. That's not a good place to be. 
But it's true, the devil wants us dead, and he's got an agenda of death that we're going to talk about a little bit. And we can look at other things in our culture besides the abortion rate, which is the disgusting statistic. But let's talk about murder rate. Not of the pre-born, but of the post-born. This is from the FBI statistics. 2015, murder rate nationwide went up 11%. 2016, it went up 13% nationwide. Since 2014 to 2016, it went up a higher percentage than had in any period previous to since the early 1970s. Scandalous, right? But let's not forget, the first murder occurred outside the gates of the Garden of Eden. The firstborn human killed the secondborn human. We could talk about abortion rates. We could talk about murder rates. We could talk about road rage, this new thing that you can see. It's a, it's a thing in our culture now. Everybody knows what road rage is. 20 years ago, I don't even know that it was a term. Certainly when I was getting my license, it not anything I'd ever heard of. But now you can watch hours of YouTube videos on people experiencing road rage. You can see there's, new, there's a new, uh, for those mental health workers, people that know this stuff, there's a new psychological disorder that has, that has made it into the diagnostic manual called intermittent explosive disorder. And it's got symptoms and treatments, and it is, it, you can be diagnosed with this in our society now. Intermittent explosive disorder and road rage is part of it. So we could talk about the murder rates going up or the road rage incidents going up. We could talk about euthanasia. Euthanasia. Mercy killing. We remember, some of us are old enough to remember this wacko named Dr. Kevorkian. He was all over the news. This Michigan doctor that started helping people die by, by poisoning them. And he went to jail for it. He was charged with murder for it. And everybody in our country at a time was, was looking at this and saying, this guy is out of his mind. And yet, today, euthanasia is legal in these first world countries. Netherlands, Belgium, Colombia, Luxembourg, Switzerland, Germany, Japan, and Canada. You can go there, and it's, because it's legal in those countries, this, this cottage industry has been formed. Uh, tor suicide tourism. People go, this is a term now. People go to these countries when they're terminally ill. And I know this is a sensitive issue, and I don't want to make light of it, because I have not been there. But I'm just bringing our attention to the fact that there are markers all around our society that if we're paying attention, we can see that there's definitely a life versus death battle going on. Euthanasia is also legal in this country. In Washington State, Oregon State, Colorado, Vermont, Montana, California this past June, June 9th, 2016, California passed the End of Life Option Act. South Dakota is considering it as we sit here. In the first week of 2017, Massachusetts was re reviewing their position on this matter. In the last week of 2016, Washington, D.C. signed it into law. So as we remember Dr. Kevorkian and think of him as a, maybe as a wacky guy, he opened a door, much like Roe v. Wade opened a door, and people are just running in. This death with dignity movement is, is a thing. And so, you know, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to, to, uh, to respond to these things? Are we supposed to be surprised as Christians? We know the deal. We know that life just doesn't start 
at conception and end at death. This is what the textbooks, Terry Woods in here somewhere, where are you, Terry? Terry teaches biology, right? This is what the textbooks teach us, that life, you know, life is just a measurable biological thing, right? Did you know that prior to 1925, it was, it was illegal in the United States in a publicly supported high school, it was, or any school, it was illegal to teach evolution. Illegal. And I won't bore you with a history lesson. Some of us may have heard of the Scopes trial in 1925 in Tennessee. Who, John Scopes was a teacher, substitute teacher, as a matter of fact, went into the classroom, started teaching evolutionary principles. Everybody went crazy, went to court, made headlines, powerful lawyers on both sides, made all the headlines. And there we had, much like Roe v. Wade, much like Dr. Kevorkian, and here we have the Scopes trial that opened this door for this national dialogue in our culture that brought into question the origins of life. And here we are, 100 years later. Not, it's not illegal to teach evolution in our schools. It's, it's 180 degrees flipped now to the point where it's illegal to teach creation in our schools. And a Supreme Court case after Supreme Court case has affirmed that this is the bent, this is the direction that our society is going in. Supreme Court cases in 1968, 1987, 2005, have reinforced the position that in our public schools today, creation will not be, be taught. Not only creation, not only biblical creation, even the idea of there being an intelligent designer behind life as we know it, the universe, the cosmos, even that is prohibited in our public schools today. And as we fight these things, brothers and sisters, and I'm not saying in any way that we should not enter into the public discourse about these issues. We should. And I believe God equips us and gifts us in certain ways to have and be particularly articulate in these conversations. There are some in this room, perhaps, like Mike Lovedahl, who is passionate about, about abortion, uh, about fighting abortion and doing all he can, that his family can, to, to, to fight this trend. There are some in this room who are passionate about arguing against evolution in our schools. There are some in this room that are passionate about name, fill in the blank of the social issue. But as we, as we look at our, as our, at our culture as Christians, let's not forget that the real fight, the real enemy in all of this is not the abortion doctor or the textbook manufacturer or that Supreme Court justice or this politician over here. That's really not who we're fighting against. It's much bigger than that. I was a kid, when I was a kid, I, I, uh, I was the kind of kid that always had a, a frog in my pocket. Peter would appreciate this. I had snakes where I got pictures of snakes around my neck, multiple snakes around my neck. I remember when my garter snake had babies, I was like, whoop, I, I'm a great zoologist because I have captive snakes that had children. Rare thing to do. I always had stuff. My mother let me keep catfish in our bathtub for two weeks one time. True story. And my, I had two older sisters, and I was like, I got these catfish. And I'm going to keep them. And my mother, being the indulgent mother that she was, she loved me like crazy. She said, okay. So two weeks, these two catfish in, in our bathtub. Um, but, but, and that hasn't ever gotten away from it. I still love that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and so I went to Virginia Tech. I studied, I studied biology. That's what I love. I love the study of biology. Even our textbooks say the study of life. Biology is the study of life where we're taught and we're reinforced. All that we've learned in public school is reinforced. We have these little things that we look at. How can you tell something's alive? Well, it grows, it metabolizes, it responds to stimulus, it, it adapts, it reproduces. We have this list of stuff. And we can, we can do the same thing with any of these issues 
that I'm talking about. Abortion, evolution, all these things. We can, we can distill it down to a, a discussion where we want to win an argument based on some sort of a litmus test. But God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And so there's a, there's a sacredness to life that we should get our minds around that transcends measurable evidence. Life is sacred not because of biological principles, but because it originated from God. God breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam. Before that, he was not a living being. After that, he became a living being. Ephesians 2.1 says, You who were dead in trespasses, God made alive. So we, so we have, on some hands, we, we have uh, zombies walking around the face of the earth that are spiritually dead, but biologically alive. So let me see if I can, I'm going I'm to give you some scriptures here uh, that, that hopefully will help us paint a picture that will, uh, that will encourage us. Because we can't afford, as Christians, we can't afford to, to uh, fall asleep at the wheel. And we are at the wheel because we are the ones that have the truth. And we don't want to be timid about that truth. We have the truth. John 17, 17, Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We have the word of God. We have, we have the, the, the spirit of God. God himself, if we're a Christian, living inside us. We have the mind of Christ. And so we have the answers to these questions. But, you know, I guess the warning that I would have, and I, again, I, I want you to hear me because I, I'm not saying we shouldn't get into the mix and discuss these things in our culture, but the warning I have is that we, sh- we should be cognizant of the fact that if we step back from the abortion issue, we step back from the evolution issue, we step back from the Supreme Court cases and euthanasia issue, that there is a bigger issue that surrounds us in a set of truths that are overarching us that should define our worldview. So a couple scriptures. Okay, like 10 scriptures, forgive me. But you don't have to follow this uh, scripture by scripture because they're all over the place, and that's just, that's just um, you know, the way I do. But the, the, you know, when we decide, if we have decided in this room that the scripture is, gonna, is true, and without error, and we're going to hold on to it, and we're going to say this, this is what we believe, that that decision has vast repercussions in our life. And it works its way down into all of our responses to all of the culture, all of the things that the culture might, might throw our way. So Ephesians 5.15 says this, See then that you walk circumspectly, circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time for the days are evil. So we start out, with this warning from God, this charge from God, that we're to be looking around, circum, like circumference, looking around as we walk. And so as we, as we do battle in our culture today over various, various issues, we can't lose sight of the fact that God's got the answers and we're supposed to make sure we're looking 360 degrees around us. You know, just, I like to hunt. And some, some guys in here, maybe your girls like to hunt a little bit. And I, I can't tell you how many times that I've been hunting, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at this spot where I'm just sure the deer's coming out of that spot right there. That's where the trail is. That's where the scrapes are. The, here, And all of a sudden, he comes up behind me. Like, oh, and, he, and, I, and I don't get a chance at him. And, and the reason I share that is, is because in our culture, we can be focused as Christians on, this, on one aspect, one fight, one cultural you know, moray that we want to elicit change about, and we can miss a bigger picture. So God tells us to look around. Look around us. Ephesians 6.12, we're told 
that we're not really in combat with one another. We're not fighting the abortion doctor or the textbook manufacturer. It says in Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's hugely important because, as a matter of fact, we're, we're told to love our enemy. Love our enemy. So I always am saddened when I hear, you know, violence or abortion doctor gets shot or, some, you know, or there's some ungodly response to a cultural problem. And we've got them, we've got them to, we, you could fill in the blank, you know, it's not sanctity of life related, but, you know, same-sex marriage or all, all sorts of stuff that you can fill in the blank. We live in a complicated world right now. All the more reason for us to walk circumspectly. But remember, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age. We're told in the Scripture, if you study the Scripture, 1 Peter 5, 8, we're told of who the real enemy is. We're not left blindfolded, duking it out like a shadow box. We're told who the enemy is. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober. Be, and that doesn't mean... No alcohol, so it means be serious-minded. Be vigilant. Because, what? Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he will devour. So we have this, I mean, that's a pretty chilling verse. I think of the devil, I think, well, that's God's enemy. Well, no, no. If, I'm, if I belong to Christ, he's my enemy. He's our enemy. He's the enemy of humanity, and his agenda is death. That's what he wants. He wants you dead. He wants us dead. We're told this in John 10.10, 10, the thief, it says, the thief in John 10.10 10 says, the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his agenda. Jesus says, the next verse, I have come that they may have life and to have it more abundantly. I'm glad that, uh, that years ago this guy told me that the, the devil wants me dead because I believe it to this day. doesn't make me paranoid. doesn't make me fearful. It makes me realize that's the devil's agenda. That's the devil's agenda. We're told in the scripture about what the what, what we can expect out of this world. The world, it says in 1 Corinthians 7.31, the world in this present form is passing away. We shouldn't be surprised at that. It's right there in the Word. We're told in Mark 13.31, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It's very clear. We're told of this great hope, and I'm going to read some scripture here to you. If you open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to read the first nine verses. But before we do, I want to tell you just a, a story that really drew this home to me. When I, when I was uh, um, living in Blacksburg, um, Catherine and I had not gotten married yet, I don't believe. Um, I was going to church called Blacksburg Christian Fellowship. Anybody ever been to Blacksburg Christian Fellowship down in Blacksburg? Anybody? There was one young lady in the first service that, that goes there. So that church had the Lord's Supper uh, every Sunday before the main service. And I always loved to go. It's where really where I, I got to know my wife uh, through that in part. Uh, but there was this older couple. I was 25, 26 years old, just a kind of a young man, just you know, trying to figure it all out. And, uh, but I wanted to learn. I, want, I wanted to learn about my new faith. Saved at 24, here's maybe a year or two later. And there was this old couple that was always at the Lord's Supper in their mid-80s. 
And no offense if you're in your mid-80s, but I, I wanted to be around these people because uh, Mr. Craig, Jim Craig was this guy's name, Jim and Ruth Craig. They were dear people. And, I, and they, they, he would just pray these prayers that made me melt. He just seemed to have such a close relationship with the Lord. And they seemed to have such harmony together as a husband and wife, even in their mid-80s. And I made it my goal to get to know these people. And so I'd sit next to them, and we would talk. And over time, I got to be pretty close with them. And they'd invite me to their house. I'd go shovel their sidewalk. And it snowed. And they, you know, and eventually he got Alzheimer's disease, and she called me. And she would call me and say, will you come sit with him for a few minutes? I want to go to the post office, or I need to go get a gallon of milk. And I would be glad to do that, I'd rush up there. And I'd sit, and we'd eat ice cream, and we'd talk about stuff and tell stories, and then he'd forget what we talked about, and I'd tell it again. And it was great fun, but it was just a, it's a precious memory for me, but he passed away eventually. And, uh, and so his wife called me one day, a couple days later, said, look, uh, the, the viewing, the, the family night is this night at this uh, funeral home. You're part of our family. We, we want you to be there. And I said, I'm glad to be there. So I, I show up at this, uh, at this wake, this viewing. And I go to the funeral home and I go into the parlor and there's, I don't know, maybe a hundred people in there. And it's just, it is dark and sad. People are crying. Obviously, people are just not handling this very well. There's a lot of sobbing, tissues getting passed around, and there's a casket at the front of the room uh, open, and I get online. I'm going to pay my respects to my friend, and I'm sad myself, and I'm shedding some tears, and I'm just thinking about the influence this man had on my life, and step by step, person by person, I'm getting closer and closer to the front, and I get up to the point, I look down at the casket, and it's not him. True story. And I panicked. I was like, oh, my goodness. Either the, you know, they, what am I, what do you do? So I asked, well, all right, I, I don't know you. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry that you died. Um, and, I'm, and I pray this little prayer. for the, I hope God comforts your family. And I sort of make my way slowly out of the room, shaking a few hands as I go. And I get to the, uh, to, to the hallway. I'm like, Holy cow, I go to the, the guy that's run of the funeral parlor. I said, I thought Jim Craig's funeral was here. He said, well, yeah, it's parlor C around the corner. And I go around the corner. This is, a, this, is, I, this is an amazing story in my life. I go around the corner. I walk into this other parlor. Same setup, exactly. Casket in the front, 100 people in the room. The spirit in that room was utterly different, fully, completely different. There was laughter. There was joy. There were, there were tears, but there were not tears without hope. I'll never forget that night. And I don't know anything about that other man and his family or his circumstances. But I can tell you this. There was a different spirit in those two rooms. And, and, and as Christians, we walk around with the spirit of God in us. That brings us hope. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 9. I'm just going to read. For we know that if our earthly house, in, that, that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan. I turned 50 this past summer. I, I'm learning more about what it means to groan. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. And here, look at this that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Isn't that an interesting statement? That mortality 
the thing we think of as, this, as, as life, mortality, may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are confident, verse 6, we are confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, verse 9, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Our hope is not in this place. Our hope is not in this body. Our hope is not in our good health. Our hope is in the Lord and what he's done. And I'm going to read two more sections of Scripture here, and then um, the praise team will come back up. I'm going to read Hebrews 2, 14, and then we're going to go back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And again, my hope is that we're sort of putting together some Scriptures that we can look at and, and meditate on that will help guide us in our current culture of exalting death over life, combating the Prince of Peace over these things. Hebrews 2, 14 says this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And 15, And release those who through fear of death were all their life subject to bondage. You know, Christ's work uh, is complete and... and uh, and we can together say that where, O oh, death, is your victory. Christ has won the victory for us. I want to end with uh, some verses in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and we'll start, well, let me, let me start in 19, and then we'll move over a little bit. So Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 15, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men, the most pitiable, the most pitiable. So is your life rough right now or has it been rough? Okay, I'm sorry about that. Are we all go through issues, some of us harder lives than others, but this verse can remind us that our hope in Christ is not, does not run out at the end of this life. To the contrary, someday mortality is going to be swallowed up in life, and not just not biological life, not life that you can measure with a stethoscope or a sphygmometer, right? but spiritual life, true life, eternal life. Let's flip over to 35, 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow... You do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There are celestial bodies, verse 40, and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body, our body, he's talking about our physical body, the body is sown in corruption, 
It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. I want you to capture the dichotomies here that, that he's talking about. If you're groaning in your physical body, here's what's coming, Christians. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, verse 45. This is important. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was made of the earth, was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have born, he's talking to Christians here, he's talking to you and me, as we, as Todd Gizak, has borne the image of the man of dust, so Todd Gizak, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. This is where our hope lies. Verse 50, now this I say, brethren, and this is such an absolute, uh, just a, such an absolute proclamation. It's a rule. It's a law. It's undeniable. This I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's put out there. It, the Lord put it right there in black and white for us to see it. Flesh and blood cannot, it's impossible, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. By that he means uh, die a physical death. But he, well, we will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. Hallelujah. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Move down to 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So to the Mike Love dolls of the world who are, are in the trenches doing battle with this issue of abortion, God bless Mike Love doll. And to those, the Terry Woods of the world who are in the classroom inserting any, uh, any reference you can insert to steer people to the Lord as we do battle ourselves individually with, uh, with whatever cultural issue uh, the Lord has laid on our hearts. Let's do it as unto the Lord Let's not, uh, let's not be uh, uh, weak or, or double-minded. Let's be steadfast, as 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, steadfast, immovable, and abound in this work. But let's also remember that there is a celestial component to what we're experiencing here, um, and there's a great celestial battle between the Lord and the devil, and the Lord's won it already. And this is where our hope is. And this is where our encouragement, I hope, uh, is. It is for me, and I hope that it is for you. So I'm going to invite the praise team to come back up. Let me pray, and then I will st step off. Lord, help us as your people. You put us in this place at this time. You, uh, Lord, it's a confusing time. Our, our, our culture some, in some ways seems uh, to really be spiraling down. But here we are. We've got the truth. 
We've got the, the very Spirit of God, the living God, the God of the universe in us. We carry that Spirit with us wherever we go. and We pray, God, that you would work through us these jars of clay. We make ourselves available to you, God, to do the work that you want us to do on this, on this earth. Lord, help us to be evangelists. Help us to be those who share your truth and your love in the person of Jesus Christ with the world around us. That's where hope is. Lord, we, uh, we love you. We thank you for this day. We lift these things up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.